It's the realizing the truth of we are the medicine. Now that's the opportunity right now, right, to put those things back together, the divine masculine and the divine feminine working together. The universe can't contain God, but the heart of a believer can. So that tells you that's where all, you know that's where your healing uh, center is. And if you can go within there, I don't I don't think there's anything you can't fix. Welcome to Going Within, the podcast where I, David Naylor, and our guests dive deep, sharing our transformative journeys with psychedelic therapy and other awakening experiences. As the founder of Within, a psychedelic assisted therapy clinic in Austin, Texas. I'm dedicated to helping others find profound healing and consciousness expansion using ketamine in a ceremonial approach. Join us as we explore the life-changing potential of going within and listening to inspiring stories of transformation from various life experiences and ceremonies. Thank you for honoring me with your presence and attention today, and I'm so grateful that you're here in all of your infinite wisdom. Now, let's go within. Welcome to the Going Within podcast. Today's guest is Ian Benweez. He is a West Point graduate, former U.S. Army officer, a Black Hawk helicopter pilot, combat veteran. He's been helping wounded veterans for over a decade. He founded the ONAC Church Chapter and the Santo Daime Church, among 55 other churches. Speaking of which, Ian went back to get his law degree after being a father of four and raising a family and serving in the military. Um, and has helped launch these churches all over the country. And now he even has a church of his own. We dove in on so many topics, and I'm excited to dive right in on our discussion. So Ian, like, what, what does going within mean to you? Sure, I think we're oriented a lot in our society to outside, outside loci of control and measurement, right, and self-observation. And going within just means that everything we need for our own healing is potentially inside of us. And so that's where we can go in. And if we're safe, right, and protected, and we have all the support we need, then we can access our own inner, inner physician, our own natural healing that lives inside of us, you know. And, uh, you know, from the... A lot of religious perspective, like, you know, the, the Sufi perspective says that uh, the universe can't contain God, but the heart of a believer can. So that tells you that's where, all, you know, that's where your healing uh, center is. And if you can go within there, I don't, I don't think there's anything you can't fix. Ian, it, it's so good to have you on the show. What an honor to have you here. Um, I know that you have been fully immersed in the mission of humanity, of love, of awakening, of consciousness, of healing. Um, you know, it's just my first question is why? Why are you on such a mission and why are you on so much purpose right now? Sure, so it sounds like that's, you know, really part of my, my story. I grew up in Hawaii where cannabis and mushrooms were decriminalized back in the 70s. And so uh, they started the Operation Green Harvest out there where they started doing cannabis eradication using milita U.S. military to do domestic policing operations. And when that started to happen, that just brought the meth epidemic in from Japan right into the rest of the country. So I've been living under the drug war my entire life. And that's why my mission is to, to change that because it's not working for us and it's killing people. Well, and that's interesting because you actually went to war and you went into the service of our country. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. I was, so I'm a West Point graduate and former U.S. Army officer, and uh, I was a, a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in Operation Just Cause in the Republic of Panama. 
So that's the biggest drug operation in world history. And uh, we went there because Noriega was our guy and the Colombians offered him more money. And we had to go in there and do a regime change. But uh, I saw the personal costs, you know, of, let's just say, maintaining the drug war, where we spent lots of money and the addiction rates haven't changed. So I don't, I don't know what we bought with all that. Yeah, blood, sweat, and tears. It's fascinating, the story of war. Tell us the impact when you came back from war and your personal journey of what you had to essentially um, heal from and go within. And, and what did you awaken to? Um, curious how that, that uh, it, it, was there any trauma? Was there, what was your story like? Sure, sure. So uh, through, through my military service, I, uh, yeah, I, you know, got like no surprise uh, PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. So the biggest correlator for PTSD is childhood trauma. So if you have childhood trauma like everybody to begin with, then you go to the war stuff and it just uh, pi piles more on top of that. But uh, yeah, flying a helicopter and people in my unit died all the time in training and then people died in combat. And I had some uh, crashes, which, you know, I, I survived, but between those crashes and uh, had a, a traumatic brain injury in the military. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, was eventually became a, 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 a you know, disabled veteran uh, in the past couple of years when I finally filed my VA claim, but that was, you know, that was a result, a result of my service. So I uh, got out of the army and uh, in California, Fort Ord, my unit flew more night vision goggle hours than anyone except the Task Force 160, the Black Hawk Down guys, and that's what my unit was rolled up into uh, uh, when they shut down Fort Ord. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I got out and I uh, came to Austin, Texas. <laughs> what year? What year was that? 1990. Yeah, wow. right, right before Desert Storm. So I was a pilot in command as a commission officer, which you usually don't get to do that because I was in Panama. And so I'm like, well, for sure they're going to invite me to Iraq. And when they didn't, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to complain <laughs> at all. And so uh, I moved to Austin because, or Texas, really. You know, the, I'm from Hawaii originally, and then you know. Didn't want to move to anywhere cold, and the coasts are really nice, but they're expensive. And I said, Texas, you know, used to be its own republic, all that kind of stuff. There's still, you know, still kind of has a, has a frontier spirit. So, yeah, I moved here to, to Austin and uh, became a pharmaceutical rep for Pfizer. What did you learn about that? Well, first off, Pfizer was at such the peak that even back then that there, we had two divisions of 600 sales reps and 85% of that were West Pointers. Oh my gosh. So Pfizer was literally buying the integrity of West Pointers to, yeah, to, to promote its stuff. So I saw that there was obviously good medicines that could help people, but I mostly saw that there was lifestyle medicines that the doctor was giving to a patient because the patient's like, my blood pressure's high. And the doctor, instead of saying, well, you can eat less cheeseburgers and work out some, the doctor's like, here's a lifestyle drug that'll treat your blood pressure, but you're you're still gonna be sick. It didn't treat the root. It, it only covered the, the symptom. And exactly. so you saw a little bit of capitalism and corruption, I would say. Yeah, and what happens is the minute you get one of these drugs, it has a built-in side effect. And then that you gotta have to take another drug for that side effect. So you get a you take the high blood pressure medication, and let's just say then then your uh, you know then your 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 business doesn't work. <laughs> you can't you know have uh, 
relations with with your uh, with your lover, and uh, so they have to give you a medicine for that, right? And then but you the, get to go back to the doctor, and he gets another visit, oh, another yeah. payday, oh, another yeah. wow. Yeah, and and so and then that drug has another side effect that they give you another drug for. I'd meet people that were on. 10, 12 medications, and they could only remember the reasons for the last two. They couldn't even remember why they were another one. So I saw the good it can do, right? And then I saw this was when the synthetic uh, opiates really started to take off, and then the same thing with the SSRIs. So there was a lot of hype around that, but it was misplaced. And then, of course, they weren't talking about the downsides of these things. And so I saw all that promise, you know what I mean? <laughs> but not really be be fulfilled. So... Tell us now how you came into psychedelic medicine and therapy for yourself and how that changed your life. Sure. So I knew that these medicines were a thing growing up in Hawaii. Yeah. Everyone grew cannabis. Mushrooms grew around my high school. So when I got out of the military, I didn't know there was terms like trauma or any of these other kind of things. I just knew that I needed to do some work on myself so that I could, you know, be in society and so I could you know, get married, you know, have a job, have kids, do all that kind of stuff. And I knew those medicines were the pathway to do that. So basically in law school from 94 to 97, yeah. So you went back to law school. Yeah, so once I got kind of, you know, I, I did the Pfizer thing and I'm right. like, this is cool. This is not, not my future. I'm, I'm back in the civilian world now. You know, what do I want to do? I'm like, I want to get more schooling and be able to do more things from there. And uh Law school made sense for that. And then I just was worked on myself for basically three years straight. Wow. You know, uh, all, all the medicines you can imagine and just use those regularly to, yeah, to do, to do my work. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that got me to the point where I could do the corporate world and all that for a while be before it turned out to my next round of healing, you know? You know so, when you started taking psychedelic medicine and therapy, yeah. help our, our viewers understand like, did you do it with a guide, a therapist, yourself? You know, and then what was your experience like awakening to consciousness or healing your nervous system? Walk us through a little bit of a, a journey. For sure, example. sure. Well, I think it's good to put it in like these waves of the psychedel of psychedelics, right? The first wave was with Timothy Leary yep. and those folks right in the '60s. The second wave was Terrence McKenna, the so, Internet, PC, and Basement Shamans, yep. and that's when I like came up in that time frame. And now we're in the third wave where it's all going mainstream. That's so, so accurate. Yeah. Wow. So so for me back in the day, the second wave was that you took these medicines with your homies, you know, your loved ones yeah. at home in your basement <laughs> or not. And uh yeah. Or at or at Esalen. Oh, out yeah, at Big yeah. Sur. Yeah, if right? you if you, if All you the had those yeah those kind connections. of connections for sure. And uh yeah, but there were, there were a lot of basement shamans and people use these forums and groups to share information. It's like, well, how do you extract this out of that? And if I take this, how much should I take? So back then it was me and my uh, my wife, you know, we're, we were the, the tripping partners. And uh, yeah, it was doing ceremony in our own house together. Uh, yeah, many, many, many times. So that was our, you know, that was our program. I didn't yeah, I didn't have any of this lineage understanding or experience. At that or wave, there were no protocols in place. There, no. you, you essentially were pioneering and learning along with these other uh, second wave uh, generation how to build the protocols that we now see today. Yeah, exactly. Because we know in the '60s, like you know, they had this awakening, this this consciousness, you know, but they people didn't have the programs 
to put that into action to get the benefits for the long term, to, to, to see the fruits. They didn't have the tools and the protocols in the, in the, in the community to plant that stuff in the ground to be able to you know, get fruits from it later. So. Well, thank you for your pioneering work for all of us third waivers. <laughs> amazing. Okay, last question, and I want to move on to the next topic. Just walk us through one of your most powerful journey experiences. Walk us through what actually happened for you that changed consciousness. Sure. Um, well, I'll kind of highlight and then go to the event. So done ayahuasca bunch. I did like over 70 ceremonies in a four-year period. So that was like the equivalent of a three-day every other month for four years straight. Through that process, I accepted my life, past, present, and future. Okay. And then two years after that, so that's let's say 2016, around there, 2015. 18, I got over myself. I'm like, okay, I have no control in my life other than yes. And, you know, anything else, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I, I, I can't control that. I can only control my yes. And so accepting my life and getting over myself, then I'm like, I don't want to get out of the medicine. I remember I did ayahuasca for two weekends mm -hmm. and I had just such a natural high and just being all cleaned out and everything yeah. that I remember coming down like a week later, I was driving in my car and all of a sudden it was like, like my feet hit the ground. I was like, what just happened? It's like, oh, I just came down from the high that I've been on for two weeks, you know? And I'm like, why do I want to go and retreat? Why do, I, why do I need to have something where I'm fighting and then I get, do that, like I work and then I go and retreat and then I play. I'm like, I, can, I, I want to stay in the medicine. I want to stay in the play all the time. And that's what I decided to do is just stay in the medicine all the time and just, just keep going from there. I remember the first time I ever met you, uh, Dr. Martin said, you need to meet Ian Binwies. And uh, he was telling me about growing up in Hawaii, a surfer, went in and became a Black Hawk pilot, came out, worked for Pfizer. Then he became an attorney and then he's building, representing plant medicine churches, fighting for the, the rights of, of, our, of our humanity, of our collective. And I'm like, I definitely have to meet this person. So I, I think I was gonna, when we met, it was up at the domain, and I thought I was gonna meet this attorney, you know, when you meet an attorney, a certain look, you know? And you had this far out, far out, you know, psychedelic awakening shirt on with the third eye, and I'm like, this is the guy, man. And now it makes sense because, you know, I think now I've only been on this journey for about three years, since I awoken to, to plant medicine, I was sober for over two decades, was rehab at 17 years old. So I lived that sobriety life, strong arm, I control it, my goals, my mission, my life, my, my, my. And to the point where my life just stopped working. My life just, it was like hitting a wall and I was still sober. And I was counting my sobriety dates and all of this and I was, mentoring and sponsoring. I actually owned treatment centers at the time. And um, I just felt like my life was so hollow. Death was not like, I had started thinking about death and I'm like, no, I'll think about that later. Can't think about that now. There was just such a shell, an energetic shell of ego that I wasn't aware of. And that's when, and I used to make fun of people going to do plant medicine, ayahuasca, the jungle, uh, mushrooms. I'm like, you guys are just doing drugs. You guys are just, you guys are just chasing a high outside yourself. Come get sober, come do the work. I mean, this is, was my mentality. And it was interesting because, you know, that year, uh, 2019, 
um, everything froze for me and I just couldn't even get up and go to work. And I remember someone inviting me to do a plant medicine journey. And like you, plant medicine, uh, sacrament, uh, what is what are these what is this language right safe set and setting um intention and prayer to me this was a whole new language because all i knew was shrooms and raves and, and kind of that old language around drugs i don't even use the word drugs anymore because to me this really is a medicine and it's sacred and so just to kind of share a little bit about what happened was i ended up sitting even though i was afraid because i thought i was going to lose my sobriety date yeah and and then I thought all the judgment from my recovery community was going to come. And it did. But like I had to trust my body because my body was saying yes. But my mind was saying, no, no, drugs, lose control. No, don't do it. Right? So my mind was afraid, but I listened to my body because every part of my body said yes. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't ever knew what was listening to my body was. <laughs> right? My whole life I listened to my mind. And so I sat in that first hour. I laughed like a hyena. I couldn't stop. I was rolling on the ground laughing mm -hmm. and I just couldn't stop. And I was a serious person. So that was cathartic. My body was healing. The next hour, weeping like a little baby. I had never wept since my dad died like 15 years ago. And I just wept. My shirt was soaking. And that final hour, January 21st, I was sitting by the fire and I became one with everything. And it was like a four gram dose, right? <laughs> but it was beautiful. And from ever then, that's when I jumped in and similar, you know, 40 ayahuasca sits and different sitting with therapists and sitting, going to Peru and sitting with space holders. It has been a journey of awakening, of healing, of oneness, of connection, of belonging, of love, consciousness. It's, it's just been a wild, amazing, beautiful ride. So such an honor to be here with you. My next, my next topic is, you know, um, I really want to hear about your mission right now. Your whole life has been leading up to this mission. Uh, you've represented churches, being an attorney. You now have a church. Tell us about your church. Sure. So after I did this first round of healing in the mid-90s while I was in law school, then I went and became a father, had four kids, raised them, was in the corporate world. That's another life. I forgot yeah. to <laughs> and And yet... Things caught up with me, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And again, I didn't know words like trauma mm -hmm. or any of those kind of things. And then in 2014, I went to a the first veterans cannabis, you know, gathering here in Austin. Right. And all these vets, you know, they're talking about PTSD and all the meds that they're on and suicide and all this stuff. And I just started crying. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, you know, why why am I crying? Like I I I know the I know this stuff, but I, I'm like, oh, I still have stuff inside of me that I still have to work on. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh. Healing round 2.0. I you know did the one in law school. Now I'm like it's time to do that, and that's really I didn't hang out with veterans at all before that, other than a couple of friends, you know, from from back in the day, and so uh, that's what what got me here in 2015. I, I I drank ayahuasca back in 1997 with Terrence McKenna's ayahuasca. And then uh, Don Augustin Rivas Vasquez, the granddaddy shaman from Peru of all, a lot of these people, came here to Austin in 1998. Mm. And, and, I'd, uh, and so I sat with him and I'd done 5-MEO like back in 95, but I didn't have the community. I didn't have the support structure, you know what I'm saying, to, to, to keep on doing those things. Right. And instead, my kids and my family were, were my medicine. And then after meeting veterans in 2014, I started sitting ayahuasca again in 2015, and that's why I did that like four-year period and working with uh, other medicines, iboga and toad, all, all the way through. And then me and 
Ben Moore, who's part of our church, another veteran going to Mexico to figure out how to treat all these veterans. And we know people would go to Peru or Costa Rica or Mexico. And then during COVID, they instituted the travel ban. If you got positive coming back in, you'd have to spend 10 to 14 days in the country. So people couldn't go to a retreat for, <laughs> for 10 days and then, and then have a chance to spend another 10 days or for 14 and have another chance to be gone for a whole month. So that just pushed everyone here in the United States that was already doing this kind of church stuff to reach out to me and Greg Lake, my law partner, who's also a co-founder of the church, to say, hey, I've been doing this kind of church stuff. Am I a church? Should I church? Or I've already been to church. How do I protect myself? How do I enshrine my rights? And that's really what we've been doing, helping over like 50, maybe 60 different churches. But we certainly weren't thinking while we were doing that, that we were going to end up uh, focusing on, a, on our own church. And, uh, and we can talk about so, that at whatever. So, so depth, wait, yeah. you actually helped launch 50, 60 churches all around healing, veterans, first responders, and, and then, then all of a sudden the idea and vision for your church came. But first you helped create and help 50 to 60 churches. Yeah, well, you helped a lot of people and, you know, and civilians as well, just people that were already doing this church thing that wanted to enshrine their rights and make sure that they were protected to the max degree. And, uh, but I didn't, we didn't think we'd been using any of those understandings or skills to do it for ourselves. And, you know, then, then along came Silmathoxen. Well, 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 before we get into your church now, tell me what you learned about the veteran community. And I know that it's got to be one of the most, you know, severely, I don't know, neglected or traumatic. I mean, what have you learned about the veteran community and the veterans and, you know, the mental health space in general. What have you learned about that? Well, what I've really learned is you need community. You need a spiritual battle buddy. You can't go and do these works without somebody who's similarly situated, who understands what you've been through and can reflect on you and also is doing the work. I'm so lucky to have my partner, Maria. We've been, ever since we met, you know, we dove, we dove in together. And that is kind of my spiritual buddy now that I think totally. about it. Totally. Maria. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can't, you can't, uh, I don't think you can do it otherwise, because if you have these deep ayahuasca experiences or you have some deep experience on toad, yeah, and that other person hasn't done it, how can you even possibly be like, what I'm feeling right now is, is so-and-so. And, 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 and especially if they're made like thought where they maybe nervous system doesn't yeah. feel safe because maybe they're feeling judged or something. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's huge. So that's the, and that's what I've learned. That's, so these lessons, the hardest thing is to do, you need to have a, partnership and community. And the hardest thing to do is to work on yourself in relationship with someone else at the same time. Cause you're both like taking off all the wheels of your car, you know, while, while you're driving uh, down the road. And at the within center, that's why it's so important that we build, we're here building community. We have eight to 10 classes every week. We have a retreat. People are here daily to process therapy weekly, coaching weekly. We do everything we can. So people have a container to have that reflection and to be able to share and be heard be seen, be understood. You're, yeah, you're building the tribe so that people know how to do these things. Although we used to do that all the time, right? right. Friday, whatever, we'd get together, we'd yeah. get the tribe together, yeah. we'd have the fire, we'd sing our songs, yeah. drink our sacrament. You know, if we had issues between each other, we'd all get it worked out. And then it turned into everyone meeting for Sunday football games and NFL and <laughs> chips and beer and like kind of moved into a new type of tribe for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, Interesting how that's we the went. end of the war. That's the end result of the war machine is that, uh, 
Yeah, guys are drinking beer, getting uh, you That's know right. ma man boobs, yep. and yelling at the television instead of you know. We had to go through our phases. being divine masculine outside. <laughs> yeah, uh, divine masculine. Well, so so learning about the veteran community, and mental health space, like it's something of some crazy statistic, like forty four suicides a day for for veterans. And you know, tell us tell us what you've learned there. Sure. We have a suicide crisis. Veterans represent an outsized portion of that. They're 7% of the population. And I think the suicide numbers are maybe like almost as high as 18 or 20% of the overall total. And veterans just represent the, uh, the, the rest of society. So the government used to say 22 a day. Now independent study at the University of Alabama with other universities says it's at least 44, but before tw half the states don't even report the suicide data and they count a lot of things like overdoses, yeah. which are otherwise intentional, they don't count them as suicide. So we've, we've got a veteran healthcare crisis that just is reflective and it just is an advance warning for everybody else. It's when the government controls your health healthcare fully like that, and then the government is giving these veterans 20 to 30 medicines, well, some of them which, well, they're already on active duty. And then when they come off, they get the full cocktail. And the side effects of these medicines are suicide and suicidal ideation. Yeah. So it's their pharmaceutical prisoners of war. And their uh, their road leads to a dead end called them killing themselves. That's right. Because you're, you think about just putting a civilian on medication. Yeah. Now you're putting a, a war vet with deep trauma on that medication. It's it's just double the damage. Yeah, and, and it's like uh, it takes care of any kind of war crimes because like they're not going to talk about that stuff except to another veteran. Why do you think our society set it up this way? Oh, why is, why is the whole thing set up this yeah. way? Uh, because war has less cruelty under the curve uh, to get us all networked up where we don't have to kill each other. So war connects the planet up. It gets all the, you know, the supply chains going and then spins off all of these life-saving technologies, right? That we're using from war stuff because people are getting blown up and whatnot, but all these life-saving technologies that otherwise someone might die in a car accident because of stuff they learned in Iraq with IEDs, they can use it for people for the, for the life-saving benefit. So ultimately, uh, we have war to get networked up faster as a planet so we don't have to keep on fighting war. And we already see that because you can't fight war in the modern age without collateral damage, which makes it completely unethical. And when, you know what I'm saying? And when everyone's a potential uh, enemy combatant and the war is going on 24 seven, in World War II, people spent an average of 44 days in combat. In Vietnam, it was over like 270. And then modern war in Iraq and Afghanistan, 365 days a year, 24 seven, anybody could be blowing you up, shooting at you, killing you. That's, that's the end of war. And you can't, we're like, oh, in 9-11, Brown guys came over here and blew us up. We'll go over there and blow them up. Like that's literally right. the that's thinking. What happened. But then thinking. in COVID, nineteen years later, it's like, wow, there's the enemies. There's nowhere to go. It's just war all the time. There, and, and there's no and there's nowhere to run to to avoid the war. And you can't touch anybody else without them touching you back. So it's all you. So you can, there's no there's no one to fight against anymore. Do you think that with the acceleration of war and pain and Darkness. Do you think this is accelerating our healing as well? Are we seeing yeah, healing yeah. happening accelerated? That's what I, I think that's the only way that it makes any sense. Like from otherwise, it's real lot of cruelty, right? Is yeah. that we get smarter faster so we can get to mercy faster, but we got to go through the the hate and anger and all their other stuff to learn that and 
and to transcend, to go past it, to go through it. So we came from the solar plexus age, solar plexus ruled by the sun. That's war. That's war. I'm just like Mars. And so, so, so now we're entering an age where the divine masculine has been in control. And since you basically had the German beer purity laws in the 1500s, it used to be all the ladies were making all the brews in their cauldron for the husbands and the, right, the, the other people in the family. And uh, the Germans said, no, here's the ingredients. And then who controls all the grain? And then we just have hundreds of years of drug war where we got the so-called spice trade and we got opium wars and all this other stuff. So, What's your prediction on when we'll have a, a, a world where there's just such little, little crime and we are, we are connected, we're kind, we're loving, we're, do you see that happening? Yeah. And, and when do you, would you predict that? Well, so I think this is the beating swords into plowshares, right? And, and spears into pruning hooks. These aren't like, you know, ideas that somebody took ayahuasca or toad and just came up with. These are long ideas that there's going to be a time where war doesn't serve any purpose anymore. Right. It's not needed. And who's going to show that truth but the warriors that are the output of the war machine? This is the after action report that we're giving back to the public called We've exhausted the limits of what war can do. Now we need to look at an alternative. And yeah, I think this in this, okay, in this psychedelic uh, third wave, if we take that those that are about 30 years apiece, like in the 60s or, you know, 20 to 30 years, yeah, this is now. This, this, within this wave is when we have the chance for psychedelics to go mainstream, for people to do community healing and, and, and leveraging the technology to do some of the heavy lifting so we can make art and music and dance and share play, fruits connect, together. Exactly. And play, because we're not here to work, we're here to play. So. You, know, you know, we're probably going to be out of time soon. I want to get to the church. I have last question on this. It really seems like to me that psychedelics is actually a major, major key, key to our, our collective consciousness expanding into the next conscious um, paradigm. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Totally. Yeah. Totally. It's, okay. uh, we, it's the realizing the truth of we are the medicine. We, we split science, you know, and religion, spirit and matter to figure out matter but we forgot that the whole point was because we are spirit to begin with. And so now that's the opportunity right now, right? To put those things back together, the divine masculine and the divine feminine working together. Yeah, this is the, this is the time and the place to, uh, to do all things. So yeah, I'm super optimistic. There's just still a lot of, of crap we gotta still process. Right in the middle of the ayahuasca journey. We're still only a couple <laughs> hours in on the collective journey. We've got the whole night well, to go. Well, there you go. So could I'll, be another two decades. Who knows? So ayahuasca, you need to get church, hospital, and university, right? That's right. The, and that's why you need to do it the three, at least three days the first time. And yeah, it seems like we're still in the hospital. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right? So we still, first you, part of the... Yeah, exactly. But we're, still, <laughs> we're in it. Oh, we're, we're, we're in it. We're in it. And so people got to get cleaned up right. before they can learn some of these other life skills that's and right. It might get a little crunchy before love comes at the end of the night. Because I, with ayahuasca, she always brings us back to love. Um, yeah, I want to I talk about the church. Uh, tell us about your church and tell us about, you know, just how, um, how it has come into fruition and the difference it's making and, and how people can find you. Sure, sure. So we're, we're on the... Uh the web, uh, silomethoxin.com. 
P-S-I-L-O-M-E-T-H-O-X-I-N.com. Yeah, or someone can just Google you <laughs> yeah, and you will come oh, up. Goodness, Don't worry, just Google you. And so, uh, yeah, our church came into being because I've worked with 5ML a lot, I'm on myself and other people, and it's an incredible, the release that can be delivered right through a deeper dive dose. And we also all know that the afterglow effect is really incredible. And that's where there's a lot of therapeutic opportunity, right? If, if you want to be able to have more of that interaction. So I'm like, how do I get that afterglow without only packaging it with the, the deep dive, the deep release? Right. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to use an MAOI. That's what ayahuasca does. And that's pretty high tech. And you really, we know it got to be really clean. A lot of veterans are on meds where that's not really going to jive. So I'm like, how do I get an oral, uh, you know, version of 5-MeO? And uh, yeah, that's where, uh, yeah. Through, well, through how did you? That's well, fascinating. Well, yeah. That blows my mind. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I, <laughs> ultimately, I saw that you needed to put these things together to, in, in a sacred synthesis for, for all this to happen. And so I found Sasha Shulgin's treasure map on the internet. Okay, in 1965, the uh, Pasteur Institute, Mark Julia, they synthesized psilomethoxin mm -hmm. in a 10-step process from vanilla. And just so, the, so I know and the guests, like the viewers, what is psilomethoxin? Sure, don't have my handy molecule with me <laughs> here, okay, but, but it's, it's a, a molecule. Yeah, exactly. It is a molecule. Yeah, it's 4-hydroxy, 5-methoxy, DMT, trip, yeah, dimethyltryptamine. Wow, so that can be taken orally. orally. Wow. So, yeah, so if you you and I take DMT without the ayahuasca part, it doesn't work. Our stomach breaks it down. If we put a four hydro hydroxyl, an oxygen and a hydrogen in the fourth position, that keeps it from being broken down, and it makes the DMT orally active. So psilocin is just really orally active DMT, four hydroxyl DMT. If you feed the mushrooms five meo DMT, they four hydroxylate it. They four hydroxylated THC, they four hydroxylated DIPT, DEP. When you say the mushrooms four hydroxylated, yeah. tell us what that means. Sure, that means that the mushrooms have an enzyme, uh, PSIH, and it's a hydroxylase enzyme. So that enzyme in water, where you get all your hydrogens and your oxygens from, it takes that hydroxyl, OH, and it literally attaches it to the molecule in the fourth position. And, wow. and Shulgin said this, he, someone said to him, if, if other people have done this with the mushrooms, with other substances, why isn't psilomethoxin in your book? Tikal, uh, tryptamines I've known and loved. He said, because it doesn't exist in nature, it's totally legal. And he said, I give you even odds that if you take mushroom spores and 5-MeO-DMT and you put them on a, a, a cow patty, cow manure, that it'll make slomethoxin. And I'm just like, Shulgin, even odds. I'm like, <laughs> that's the already better. That's already yes. That's already better than even odds. And so then I was kind of like, why hadn't anybody d done it? I don't know why, but I, I had a friend do it and then it worked. And then I, I took yeah. it and, and I shared with other people and it you know worked more. So we just kept on going. And now you have a whole church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell us about your community, where it is, where they can find sure. it. Sure. So you can find us online and we have members all across the world. Uh, we've sh shipped our sacrament uh, internationally. So we have about 15. Uh, and guys, over... they can legally ship this supplement yes. of mushroom, psilocybin and 5-MeO-DMT. This is extraordinary. Yeah, so the idea, of course, is there's, because it's the mushroom, there's always going to be trace amounts of psilocin and psilocybin sure. there, because this is the mushroom does, just sure. like uh, the cannabis plant is going to grow THC, of course. even if you 
call it hemp. Right. And so, but if you feed it enough 5-MeO, it only makes trace amounts of those other substances That's and right. it makes the predominance of the silomethoxin. So, so yeah, so we've got, we've got uh, uh, regular every other Sunday services, okay. right? And regular then Sunday we have services. integration. Where's your service? It's online. So okay. yeah, exactly. You pretend online. We've got an integration group. Then we've got a veteran integration group. We've got a recovery integration group. And then we're group building, you know, let's just say communities all across the country. These people really, it's more than like a mycelium. They're self-organizing themselves. Okay. You know, we've got a Discord server and stuff like that that they're using as a platform, but that's how they're, they're organizing. So yeah, I just leave it at this. The people ask me a lot, how big is the church going to get? I have no idea. But there's 75 million people on SSRIs, one out of every in America, one out of every four Americans. And there's 61 million people in the Catholic church. So it just gives you an idea. Like we got a big problem. Big problem. And uh, yeah, the doctors give these drugs without telling people that they might be on them forever and that they could be difficult to get off. And that's really, I think it's criminal. And we see this at the Within Center. We see our clients come here and they're getting off their SSRIs and medications that they've been on, all these different ones for the different, you know, um, you know subgroups. And, and what, are the, what was I, you were saying, they, they take another... Uh, yeah, it gives them another side effect when they right, take another effects, drug. Yeah. Right? And, and so we are seeing clients getting off all these medications and coming into alignment, coming into their breath, coming into owning their truth, coming into knowing their sense of, of oneness. I mean, it's in profound what we're seeing here, and I'm sure you're seeing the same. It's amazing. Amen. <laughs> Last question. I got I to gotta end with this one. When you take the silamethoxin, and is it a microdose? Is it a hero's dose? Or and, and what's the experience? Like how can it actually help someone in their day-to-day? -day? Sure. I think a lot of people are learning about microdosing. Yes. And mostly common microdosing with uh, uh, psilocin and psilocybin. Yeah. Right? Or LSD or even DMT. And uh, the challenge with those medicines is that because they work in the 5-HT2A receptor system, they develop tolerance. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to use those medicines as a replacement therapy for SSRIs, it really doesn't work because the minute you go above uh, subperceptual into perceptual, yeah. it can affect your functionality for Got whatever it. you might be doing. And then you're going to have to take more the next day to get the same results, which means at some point you're going to have to take time off. And for people that have been on meds for 10 or 15 years, that's just not really an option. 5-MeO-DMT and likewise, silomethoxin work in the 5-HT1A receptors, which is also where all the SSRIs work. So they've literally hijacked the SSRIs. 5-HT2A is for change, 5-HT1A is for surrender. So it's really the serenity prayer. Allow me to change when I can, you know, and then accept things as they are. So you use the ayahuasca and mushrooms to change your perspective, to change yourself. And then the 5-MeO-DMT is to like, surrender. you just you just gotta ac ac accept it as is. So. Yeah. With that, you can take it and you don't have to, you can take more. And so someone doesn't have to worry about tolerance effects because you're really just getting those energy effects. 5-HT2A, that's your ego knows it's alive and mm -hmm. if it's in danger or not based on that data. But in 5-HT1A, you just, you just turn all that down some, but, you, you, but you, the, the walls don't start melting, you know yeah. what I mean? And so with the 5-HT1A, you can be functional with no to tolerance effects and you can use it as a potential uh, replacement therapy to do other stuff. It's the best analogy we've been working with is like your default mode network takes a thousand RPM. 
Wow. And you take silmethoxin and it gives you back 300 of that RPM wow. without stimulation. So then what you do with that energy is totally up to you. It's like, I'm going to be less of an asshole or a jerk or a dick, right? You know, and I'm going to use that or whatever you want to do with it. But it's like energy that you got back without having to be stimulated to get there. Ian, what an honor and treat and pleasure to learn from you, to have you here. And just for anyone watching, I mean... To be able to have a man who served our country, Black Hawk pilot, grew up in Hawaii surfing, I imagine. Well, see, uh, body surfing, but yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and just the fa a father of four, a husband, an attorney, you know, someone who's healed his own PTSD and now has helped 60 churches and now has, has his own church and has developed a medicine. We couldn't be learning from more of a better master teacher, friend, brother, husband, Father, thank you so much, man. It is a, it's such an honor to have you here. And I can't wait, I already can't wait to have you back on to ask you some more. I have so many more questions. So we'll have to have, have you back on. Totally. Thanks for having me. And God bless all your words, David. Thank I see you, what brother. you're doing. Yeah. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for joining us today on the Going Within podcast. The Going Within podcast is sponsored by Within Center. Within is a ceremonial psychedelic assisted wellness center in the heart of Austin, Texas. Discover more about our transformative practices at within.center. If you enjoyed this episode, we kindly invite you to follow us and share your thoughts with a review. Going Within is hosted by David Naylor, production led by Patrick Stanger, and filming and production by Rare Media. Please note the statements made on Going Within have not undergone evaluation by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Within, we strongly recommend consulting your healthcare provider for personalized guidance on the diagnosis and treatment of any disease or condition.